Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I'm the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin can mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to the show. And before we start this, Lauren's going to introduce the show, but I better give a quick shill to coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Make sure you go start stacking some sats. And with that, I guess I'll hand over to Lauren to introduce our guest, Stackmore. Enjoy the show, guys. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, we have uh, Stackmore here, and this is the Lauren show. Perfect. It's done. See? New music, Adam. <laughs> you know that. Hey, Stackmore. It's way better than I could have done, so it's, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Hey, Stan, now I, I, how are you, man? Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I, I'm a listener of your show, and yeah, I've learned a lot of interesting stuff. So, yeah, I would like to share some of my ideas here as well. Excellent. So, Lauren will ask the first question. So my first question is, when did you uh, know about Bitcoin and when did you decide to start buying it? Well, uh, okay, I knew about Bitcoin in 2011, actually. But, so, okay, 2011 was the year I graduated from uh, college and I was staying in Arizona for the last, like, three months and waiting to go back to my country. And it was somewhere in Arizona, and there's not a lot of things you can do when it's like 120 Fahrenheit outside. So, like, first time in my life, I started to play games and all that stuff. And I was playing this game called Lord of Ultima. It's like an online strategy game, like nothing hard or, you know, it's a simple strategy game. And we had a clan, and this guy was nonstop talking about Bitcoin. Like, oh man, this is like the new world currency and you should invest in that. You should like mine some and all that stuff. Uh, he was from Sweden. I also remember his nickname. It was, his nickname was Myrod. Anyhow, so I listened to him. I checked Bitcoin and I was like, okay, this sounds interesting. So I downloaded the node and I tried to mine. I was like, uh, I, be, I still have this old computer here. I will get it framed one day. <laughs> uh, this has the Bitcoin node 050 on it, and it still syncs and all that stuff, which is awesome because like with the new technology, unless you constantly update something, it doesn't work. So like I, yeah, but anyhow, I couldn't manage to mine. So I had no coins there and I even forget about that. So I turned this computer on back in 2017 and the first thing I did was search Bitcoin. And I found like uh, three different wallets. And it was super exciting. I'm like, Shit, you know, I don't even remember having these. So I opened them one by one. And it was like disappointment, disappointment, bigger disappointment. So I guess I found out that I couldn't mine Bitcoin. Then I also found my uh, account in this Turkish exchange that 
with the registration date 2013. But then I remember that I did not buy uh, because the exchange was registered to Northern Cyprus. And in Turkey, I mean, a lot of the scam projects and the Ponzi schemes and all that stuff in Turkey are registered in Northern Cyprus because the business laws are very loose. So I said, mm, this company may be a scam and I couldn't buy again. And it was 2017, finally, like March. And a group of a group of friends and I, we were talking and we are like, well, the Turkish era is collapsing horribly. We should like do some investments in Nasdaq and this and that and in some in Bitcoin. And that's how I started. Like finally was a coiner in 2017. But like mentality wise, I became a Bitcoiner on 2018 March at a conference in Berlin. It was a block stack conference, but the speakers were like awesome. Edward Snowden was uh, one of the speakers. He couldn't attend because like, it's funny, like I was wondering if we could make it or not. And then I went to, uh, to the place where they were holding the conference. It was right next to the, uh, right next to the US embassy. <laughs> and I said, no, <laughs> he's not going to be here physically for sure, you know. Otherwise they'll just break through the wall and grab him and leave or something. Uh, one of the other speakers was Nick Zabo. And that was Elizabeth Stark, and that was the first time I heard about lightning. It was a real interesting uh, yeah, conference. And I actually gave a gift to Nick Zabo. Mm -hmm. I, I gave him seashells. <laughs> nice. Because I love the article shelling out, so I, yeah, I gave him some seashells. It was very cool. And I gave him, like, you know, the Turkish people, we do double kiss. Yes. Also, for, with the man, it's also like we, we do that. And it's a normal behavior. And it's not as normal in other parts of the world. But I was like, man, I know this will be awkward, but I'll just give him a double kiss. So. <laughs> like that. It was funny. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. Well, we have the double kiss here in France. And uh, that yeah. when I moved here, actually, we lived next door to Dutch neighbors and they do the triple kiss. And it was a really, really yeah, yeah. thing for a British person to, obviously I'd seen it done hundreds of times, but I'd never had that double kiss from a stranger before. And it blew my mind. And what's happening right now with COVID, of course, that's all gone with hundreds of years of culture disappearing um, in front of our eyes with I mean, shaking of hands and, and uh, fearing the bees yeah. as here in France. It's kind of, I mean, like, I don't know. Uh... Do you know why, Tuggy, they decided to do the bees? Where, where did it come from? Yeah. Do you oh, know why? Deep-rooted in thousands of years of history. No one, I don't know. I've never read an article on, on what... It's, it's a very cultural thing, I think. But I really have never thought of that. Uh, no. But if you think about it, since it's so awkward for some people, back in the days it could... Uh, be an identifier uh, between people, you know, like he is one of my kind, you know, we can do the double kiss and it's not weird for him. I don't mind just making up stuff, but could be. 
Now, before we get into some really weird rabbit holes, there's a story I think you wanted to tell Lauren, and it was either about an egg or a piggy bank. Which which one did you want to? Yeah, let's let's let's do the piggy bank. The piggy bank, right? Okay, you ready for a start? Yeah. Okay. So, Lauren, before we start talking, uh, I want to tell you that I was a billionaire once. Oh, you are talk. You are talking to, to a billionaire. I was a billionaire until two thousand six, and then the Turkish president, or what? Not the president, but Ministry of Finance. They decided to get rid of six zeros because there were so many zeros on the money. Like uh, one dollar was one point two million liras. Now it's it, then it became one dollar was one point two liras, but this is what I owe my mathematics skills to. Because imagine, like you are in the first grade, oh no, not the first grade, third grade, and they have a question. Lauren has 5 million liras. Uh, Stackmore has 3 million liras. How many should uh, Lauren give to Stackmore so that they have equal liras? I was working with millions, and a lot of the other people were working with like 150 or something, you know? so. Yeah, we were already working with big amount of numbers. <laughs> but anyhow, so <laughs> this was, I think, year 1993 or four or something around that time. And I was at my cousin's house, uh, and he's two, he's two years older than me. And then he had this huge piggy bank, like this size. Uh, it was a T-Rex piggy bank. I still vividly remember it because this is one of my earliest disappointments about money. <laughs> and then we said, okay, let's break into this. And then we can get unlimited ice cream for the whole summer and this and that, you know. So we broke his piggy bank and there, was, there were so many coins inside. And we were like, yes, we made it, you know, like, oh, we, we have unlimited ice cream and, you know, like we can do whatever we want. But then we are looking at the coins and we don't even recognize some of them. And then I'm like, yeah, dad, can you come over here? And he's like, yeah, sure, you know, like, what are these? And he's like, well, they used to be the money that we used. But now uh, we got um, off the circulation. They are old money because of inflation. Like it devalued so much that they had to come up. It was like, think of it. Think of uh, cents, no? Pound, what was it? Pound, Pen smaller, penny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, imagine penny was the actual money, and then penny became so valueless that they had to come up with pounds. And then pennies were not in the market anymore. That's what we experienced. So we had this, we were calling it Kurush, and we had Kurushus, and they had no value anymore. And then I'm like, well, we have this many of these and it should be worth something. And they're like, no, oh, it's really not worth anything. So we, yeah. then we kind of, they, they kind of tried to explain us what inflation was, but it was hard. But still, that's my first memory about inflation. So, well, I'm really glad that, uh, yeah, you are growing in a, a Bitcoin aware family. <laughs> and you can have your yeah, digital uh, Satoshi piggy bank. You don't need to have the coins anymore. So. 
So yeah. could you imagine, like, yeah, I've got a picture of your your dinosaur piggy bank up here. Yeah. Um, yeah. How excited he would have been when he smashed that open. That's a big decision to make, to smash something open, right? And inside were loaded, was lots of treasure, lots yeah. of coins. But those coins... Weren't worth anything. Nothing. They uh-huh. disappeared from circulation. So... In the UK, we find an old pound coin, yeah. we can't use it anymore. Or an old five pound note, or an old 10 pound note, an old 20 pound note. If they're old, you can't use them anymore. Mm-hmm. They're worthless. So that's why I say to you guys, don't just keep your birthday money in paper form in a safe. Give it to me. I'll change it to sats. And then in 10, 20 years time... It'll go higher. You'll, you, you will be able to... Build a house every day out of ice cream and just let it melt down. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Lauren, for example, this is, I'm using a napkin so you can see it. It's a very small one. Wow. This is an ancient money. That's one of your, what, what is that you're showing us? No, this one is from 800 years ago. Right. So that's an ancient. Like, yeah. maybe older. No, well, this is over 1,000 years ago. This is still not that worthy, but it is worth something because, yeah, it's too old and it's not being produced anymore. But pounds are really easy to replicate, and yeah, and that's why once they become valueless, they become valueless. So, do you have any more questions for Stackmore before we carry on? Or you? Mm, no, I'm done. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you okay. All right. Well, do you want to say uh, bye? bye. Yeah. Goodbye. Um, what What are you drinking? Yes. Make this, sure we, uh, give a shout out. It's FS. And this is uh, your local Turkish F- beer. Yeah, it's a Turkish beer. FS is actually the Turkish name for the city Ephesus, and Ephesus was one of the police, like the uh, yeah the Greek police cities, like small cities. And this money that I showed you is also from that region because I live really close to Ephesus, like not that close, but I'm like 60 kilometers away from there. Uh, yeah, so I have access to this ancient money. Actually, I found this one somewhere, literally. We <laughs> so, found that uh, oh, Yeah, I found it somewhere close to our farm. We have a farm. Uh-huh. Uh, closer to Ephesus, so it was over there, basically. Uh, but I'll tell you something interesting. So the first uh, country that minted coins was Lydia. And Lydia is, uh, Lydia's capital was called Sardes, and Sardes is, I know, 100 kilometers away from where I live. No. So, and now you look at the state of the Turkish lira, and I always say we are the uh, grandsons of the Lydians. We are the unaware grandsons of the Lydians. Because they were the first to create the money, and uh, we just destroyed money, literally. So, yeah. And that was under yeah. if I am not mistaken. It was what? I couldn't under, get that. Under King Croesus? He was the first. He was the first. To, yes, yes, yes. I'm sure I'm pronouncing yeah. correctly, but uh, as, yes, Croesus. Has we have a different name for it? Right. So this is something that you 
this, the, I, from what I've picked up from your DMs, uh, this is something that you really like to hone in on, like the, the history of money and inflation in particular, and what it's yes. done, and what what you've seen firsthand, how it's what it's done to your country and to your own livelihood and your family's livelihood and you, you know the future generations that follow you. What I mean, could you give us? A kind of a background story. When, when did you, other than the piggy bank, when did uh-huh, uh-huh. when did it really kind of start kicking into you that man something just is so damn wrong with what's going on with our currency at the moment? Yeah. So piggy bank was like the first shot, but after that, I know I was unaware of anything until it was two thousand one actually. And I was like 12, 13 years old back then. And uh, we had a huge, big crisis there. So, like, actually, like, uh, there are always, like, uh, crisis periods in countries because the Keynesian economics require that there are growth cycles and then there are contraction cycles. And contraction cycles for some, for developed countries, they, are, they don't become crisis, but if you're an emerging country, uh, that's in need of uh, money flow, then it could become big crisis. So the like the big crisis we faced was in 2011, uh, 2001, sorry. And I don't remember who it was like exactly, but somebody threw the um, constitution to the prime minister. And then the next day, Turkish lira was like one third of its value. Mm. And that year, my father had some loans that was taken with Mark, not in Turkish lira. So, yeah, he had some, like, his payments were tripled in a matter of a second, you know. So this was, like, gradually happening. But then with the, when they threw the constitution, it uh, became suddenly, as Parker Lewis says. <laughs> so, yeah, and it really caused some problems with the family at that time because payments were tripled and oh yeah that was the second time i was aware of inflation then i yeah i went abroad to the united states to study in 2006 like those times the turkish there was kind of okay between 2006 and 2011 that i i graduated in 2011 for example, in 2006, it was 1.4. Turkish lira was $1. Then 2007, it was like 1.2. It even like uh, got more valuable. And by the time I graduated, it was 1.7, 1.8, mm-hmm. which was okay, you know, because Turkish people, we are used to, yeah, uh, inflation and like our, uh, we are used to our... Uh, currency lose value. The reason why, by the way, uh, the currency did not lose that much value in that time was uh, a lot of emerging countries got a lot of investments from uh, already growth countries. Like the Europe was investing in to Turkey, China, Korea, and Russia, all the big countries, basically. Uh, United States was also doing that. And at the same time, uh, IMF 
uh, we got a loan after the 2001 crisis from IMF, and they were having their own restrictions on the government spending and all that stuff. So, yeah, they couldn't do whatever they wanted to do. And, like, actually, the Turkish lira was doing good, and the economy was doing good. But then the same government kept on uh, staying in power, and there were no more IMF restrictions. And uh, yeah, they did a lot of corrupt stuff. For example, uh, <laughs> there is a bridge uh, that connects uh, the Marmara Sea. So the Marmara Sea is like normally when I, I live in this city called Izmir, when I go to Istanbul, I drive a couple cities. And then I either go around this bay or I take a ferry. Now there's this bridge that connects the bay and you can take it. So the bridge normally would cost, I don't know, 1 million euros or something, but uh, it, co it ended up costing 4 million euros. And the government had a guarantee for passing this bridge. So like, that there were these uh, companies, construction companies that were responsible of the construction of the bridge. And uh, the guarantee given to them was 90,000 cars will pass a day and each will be paying $42 plus tax. If that doesn't happen, we'll pay the missing part. So maybe 20,000 car passes a day from that bridge <laughs> and uh, they had to have the prices because the dollar went so high so imagine crossing a i don't know uh, or taking a highway that will make your route maybe one hour sh shorter and paying uh, 42 dollars uh, 45 dollars for that plus tax when the minimum wage in the country is 280 dollars <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so half of it is subsidized by the government now, but they still pay 90 times 40, 90, times $45 per day to the, uh, to the company that built the bridge. Mm. There's also the similar situation with, with the airports. Like there's this, uh, the biggest airport in the world that's operating uh, is in Istanbul now. It also has similar guarantees. There are these new uh, city hospitals that have similar guarantees. And there's this uh, airport in this city called Kütahya. And the airport should transfer 3 million passengers a year. And the guarantee was given for that. There's only a single flight taking off from that airport. And uh, they missed the goal by 98% last year. <laughs> Yeah, and who is paying for this? We are paying for this, you know, like... This is a... And who is getting... A classic case yeah, but, government, you know, just over-promising, under-delivering, and having, like, zero ramification in the uh -huh. making. And, you know, it's all... Like, the incentives at the time are all politically charged, and it's you guys that end up paying out of your time and out of your money as Robert Breedlove has so eloquently written about. Um, just, just where is the Turkish lira in regards to the dollar right now? Because you were saying when you were in the US, it's like 
two to one point eight sort of thing. What, what? I need to check because it changes all that. No, no, I know what whereabouts it's at. It's over eight point. It's eight point oh five right now. And it, where was it at the start of the year? Six. Wow. I don't know something like that. It, so many numbers to keep in my mind. You know, <laughs> it's around six. It was a six something. Actually, no, it was. At some point, 570 this year. Wow. Yeah. So you have... But I mean... Like this situation is inescapable. Yeah, yeah. And there's no way getting out of this. So it's funny. In 2018, I wrote this. And back then, in 2018, the Turkish uh, Central Bank had reserves around $90 billion, including the gold reserves. And... Uh, Harvard Endowment and Yale Endowment combined were around $67 billion. And I have written by 2020, uh, the endowments of Harvard and Yale will be more than the Turkish uh, Central Bank's reserves. (laughs) I was correct. (laughs) Because right now, I mean, they say we have some 60 or 50 billion or something in the reserves, but this includes swaps. Okay, in a normal case, let's say if we had a swap agreement between Turkish lira and uh, British pound, it would be acceptable, you know, because British pound is a liquid money. You can get it changed everywhere. But the swaps we have is with Qatar. And <laughs> Qatar money, it's just a joke. It's like just to uh, inflate the reserves of the country you know like because on paper it looks like we have 20 billion swaps from qatar but 20 billion worth of qatar real swaps which is not liquid nobody but qatar would take that money now turkish actual turkish uh, reserves are okay we still have the gold reserves but uh, the cash reserves are at negative negative yes oh my goodness yeah yeah yeah so what then do you say to you? I think we all know in the Bitcoin space that it's only the, the, the open-minded or the curious or the desperate that find Bitcoin. Uh-huh. Everybody in between is just bumbling along. Life is all good. You know, life's a bitch, then you die, right? That, that's all fine. Everyone's yeah, yeah. all into that narrative. But what you're seeing over there, this is desperation. You, this can't keep going on. And like the people that you're having conversations with, how are they going when you're trying to explain to them about Bitcoin? It, it's good. Like the other, I, I talk about Bitcoin a lot with a lot of different people. I mean, I made a lot of people stack too, and it's easy for me because we have a failing currency and the alternative is so much better. Like we had an all-time high today, but we had one yesterday and we had one on Friday and we had one on Thursday and we had one on Wednesday. So it's in my life at explaining Bitcoin is easy. But yesterday we had this, I was having this conversation with this kid. Uh, he's, he's 22 years old and like he, he, he, I was at this cafe and we were drinking coffee and he was the barista there. And he's like, well, I'm really worried about my and my generation's future. Like, because there's so much debt that they need to take care of. 
And then, of course, it turned into talking about Bitcoin and all that stuff. And then, just like my phone, uh, I told them that a hundred dollar bill that it costs only 16 cents to print and distribute a hundred dollar bill. And this was like kind of at the end of our conversation. It's like, you need to stop. My brain is literally exploding. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's, it's so ridiculous, like how much premium there is on the dollar. Like, it's crazy. By the way, in Turkey, I was, okay, uh, I have some money in my pocket. Well, look, this is brand new. It was printed out this week, something maybe. Brand new, brand new, brand new. And what denomination is that you're showing me? It's, they were hundreds, these are two hundreds. Yeah. They're all brand new, like there's not a single old one. I, I tell to people like, if you want to know where the Turkish lira is heading to against dollar or other currencies, just look at the money you receive from the ATM machine. If it's a fresh one, if all of them are fresh, sell them immediately and buy Bitcoin. But you know, not everybody buys Bitcoin because uh, we also had this podcast with John Wallace uh, and it was like me, Lebanon, uh, Argentina, uh, Iran, uh, the places that whose money lost a lot of value over the last couple of years. Uh, and in countries like these, dollar is a really is a reserve currency for people. People try to save in dollars. Or luckily, for example, in Turkey too, we have a good tradition of holding gold. In weddings, for example, it's customary kind of to give a gold, to give gold as a gift. So at least people saving gold, even though they have no idea why gold is valuable, but it's a custom, basically. Like they don't need to know why it's valuable. They just know that it's, it will keep its value because it has been for the last thousands of years. And, but when I talk to someone who really values gold and I ask them, like, do you know why gold keeps its value? I don't know. It's just gold, they say. Like, they don't know that uh, it takes 60 years to double the stock approximately, or they don't know that it's valuable because it's impossible to, you know, like get rid of it destroy it or create it, or you can't technically create it, but it will be so costly to create it. But they have this, uh, I don't know, in their genes that they know that gold will keep its value, basically. But Bitcoin conversations are usually going fine. It's easy to explain. Uh, and I always say I appreciate uh, a lot of the people in the space like you, for example because I experienced inflation. And that's why I, uh, I, I literally was looking for a solution to save my money in 2017, and I ended up at Bitcoin. You, it's harder for you to realize the effects of it. So I really appreciate uh, hodlers, stackers, and all kind of people from developed uh, countries with kind of more stable money. Yeah, I'd never... That's that's very touching to to hear you say that. I'd, I'd never even thought about it from from the lens of you guys looking at 
those countries that do have the more stable currencies and think and asking yourselves why are those guys stacking sats like their their pounds and their dollars um you know what their uh whatever it is they're all they're all fine so why are they stacking yeah. sats um yeah that's interesting and do you have those conversations as well like uh, w- w- with your friends it's like well look at what's going on in in other parts of the world, even though their currencies are stable compared to ours, they're still stacking yeah. and they're stacking harder than most other countries. But, yeah. For example, United States stacks the hardest. Mm-hmm. Like you can even see it like the Chinese miners, for example, or something sells on the weekends. And when the United, when the Americans wake up, numbers go up again. So, they, they are the ones that are doing the buying. And it's not just this simple observation. It's also the glass law that other sources are also saying that, that the Americans are the hardest stackers. So it's interesting. But I mean, see, the reason why I think it's that way is so content production is almost always, or high quality content production is almost always made in English. Yeah. Because like right now, I have a really different uh, viewer bias when I speak in Turkish versus when I speak to you and I can't reach to the global audience, for example. So I think there's something also to do with that. Like, you know, for example, Michael Saylor was saying that uh, Facebook is the social uh, media network. English is the language network. Mm-hmm. And it's really so hard to disrupt that. And I'm grateful that I speak English, I understand English, because uh, it gives me a big information asymmetry. Do you remember, like, do you remember that, that they tried to disrupt the English language with Esperanto? Which one? Esperanto. No, what is Esperanto? Exactly. Esperanto uh-huh. was, a, was a language that was put together, um, like engineered by uh-huh. experts to be the easiest language, the easiest global language to speak. And network effects, we all know how they work. English reached the shelling point thousands of years oh, yeah. You can't, well, hundreds of years ago, you can't disrupt it once it's, once it's the market leader. Only emojis may disrupt it. Yes. Or memes, you know, but nothing else. Back to hieroglyphics with the emojis, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, no, that's very interesting that you, that you bring that up. And you, yeah, let, let, let's talk about Sailor for a little bit because you, you said in a DM that you'd like to spend some time talking about micro Sailor and MicroStrategy and you've got some thoughts about that. So Yeah, I, yeah he's my man crush, my first one. My first man crush. <laughs> oh god! It, I, it's like I couldn't help it. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm in love. I, whatever. No, but I was saying, like you know how he says, for example, my money is melting like ice cubes. His money is melting like ice spheres. My money is melting like ice cubes. You know, <laughs> because. Uh, ice cubes melt uh, 80 per, or no, 
Uh, ice spheres melt 80% slower compared to ice cubes because of the geometric dimensions. Uh, so this is ice spheres minus ice cubes. I mean, okay, I think Jeff Bezos is also melting compared to the potential of Bitcoin, but he's an ice bag. So right. everything in life is relative, basically. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that's some small comment I wanted to make. Other than <laughs> declaring my first man crush. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone was expecting that. <laughs> but I don't think I'm alone in this space. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Amer- He's a lot of people's first man crush. American Hoddle's yeah. out some weird, some weird. <laughs> Yeah, I recently. And you also said something about um, stock to flow and human stock to flow. So do you want to get... Yes, yes. I mean, okay, it's not really that simple to calculate human stock to flow because humans are perishable. I meaning that we don't live forever. So right now it's what, 80 something years, you know. Uh, but human stock to flow, when I calculated it, uh, right now, it takes approximately with the current speed 100 years to double the human start to flow. Uh, but the 100 is increasing because uh, right now, like, people are not really that different from bacteria. Like, uh, you remember back in the biology classes, like, we were giving this example, like, you have a circle, a petri, whatever, a glass. A petri dish. And there's some... Petri, petri dish and there's some sugar in it and the bacteria starts like developing and once it like uh, over develops like it cannot develop anymore so humans are like bacteria but we kind of create our own uh, sugar uh, we do farming we do i don't know ranching and this and that and uh, actually if the there's quantitative easing and if there's more production it doesn't necessarily have to be full but if there's more abundance uh, people tend to increase in numbers like for example or uh, think about the boomers the war was over mm-hmm. there was a winner and yeah they multiplied like crazy but now I, the way I see it is like kids are becoming, uh, I don't know, liabilities. It's really so hard. It's so costly to take care of a kid now. Mm-hmm. Before, kids, at some point, they were even assets. Like, for example, in the farming nation or farming times, people would want to have more kids so that they could send them to the fields to work or they could send them to wars, or they could use them, the uh, population advantage to spread their religion, which still holds true, uh, by the way. I, I don't know, okay, let me not talk about this because I don't remember the exact details, but I think Catholics tend to have the most kids in the United States. And yeah, like, uh, I mean, even look at all religions, it's bad to abort kids it's good to have more kids and all that stuff because they want to increase their reach, basically, simply speaking. So anyhow, the human start to flow is going down 
in my opinion, not in my opinion, but according to the models too, like by 2100, they expect Italy to have a population or they expect to have around 30 million Italians, for example. Like uh, population is decreasing in developed countries because the liability factor of having a kid is much more. In Africa or other places, they still consider kids as assets. So those numbers are increasing and demographically it's showing a different trend. But anyhow, speaking, going back to Bitcoin, I think, uh, yeah, Bitcoin will reach uh, human S2F, not in next uh, happening, but somewhere between the next happening and the other one. And I want to see, I, I'm curious on what it will be back uh, in that time. That's interesting. So even even with, because the, the reason I'm going to bring this up is because I had Tristan Edwards on the phone, uh, excuse me, on the phone, on the, uh-huh. on the podcast. I don't know if you listened to that one about the longevity episode and huh. the, the, what, the technology that's going on now around curing aging, for example, and extending human life. But we're still a good... We, we might be a decade away from that really, really taking hold. Yeah. So it's me as a Bitcoiner because I want to be around to see the last mines, you know, the last oh. mind. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> we'll wait and see. Um, yeah, I, we, we, we always have this narrative that there, there are too many humans on the planet and give it 10 more years and would have overrun the place and, and you're challenging. Yeah. No, but we had this discussion with one of my ex-girlfriends actually. So I'm like, "Eh, I don't know if I want to have kids because it's really possible that we can have really long lives. And subliminally, like the point of having a kid is that you want your gene to continue. You want to have that longevity. Like I'm not physically, but over some other being, you know? So we had this like long discussion and it, it was an interesting topic to talk about. And then of course she got angry and you know, <laughs> I lost the argument. Ex-girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but. Do you mind being a Bitcoiner about having kids? Because it's a big thing on Twitter now. You see a lot of millennials. Yes. I've spoken to a lot of millennials and they're talking like I am minimum two, three, maybe four kids because they, their, their mindset has been switched. They know they've got the store of value. They can see the future and they can see themselves having kids and spending all day with them rather than yeah, yeah. a kid because it's the thing to do and then get the 2.4 kids, the white picket fence, the dog and the SUV. <laughs> you know, it, now it's something different. Yeah, I get that a lot. Like, I, Or I get the... I, I really understand the feeling and I sometimes even actively think about it. But then I think it does not have to be my biological kid. Mm-hmm. You know, like it could be any kid, like I, not like any kid, but like, I, for example, that's what I was thinking. Like uh, there is this football academy in my city mm-hmm. and uh, the guy is, a, they own a steel plant. They make steel plates and all that stuff blah blah blah they have a yeah they are rich kind of kind of 
and uh, he runs a football academy training kids from all around Turkey. He gives them uh, schooling, he boarding, schooling, uh, yeah, and he trains them for becoming professional football players. And he considers them as their as his kids. You know, so sometimes I'm also thinking about that, like, why not uh, be able to touch to way more people's lives versus having a biological kid and all that stuff. I don't know. It's it's a different concept for me. I'm still thinking about it. I still have time, I think. So you got plenty of time, man. Uh, yeah, yeah. sailed for me. I've I've got four under my belt. But I think we're yeah, uh, yeah we're, we're from slightly different generations. I'm a little bit older than you, and I was still buying into the narrative of got to have the career, got to get married, have the kids. Uh, but looking back, of course, it's just been the best thing ever. And uh-huh. the reason we got four was we had a um, we we already had two, and uh, and twins. Bam! Surprise! Uh. Bam! Double surprise! It's twins. <laughs> It's good. It's a good surprise. <laughs> it was, uh, but here we go. That's Lauren and she's my co-host now. Uh, yeah. so th- that's, um, it's brilliant. So it's interesting when I talk to Bitcoiners about starting families, because being in a completely different mindset now, I think it's such, uh, a, a better place for people to be making decisions about that kind of thing. When you have that, safety that we perceive for the future obviously there's nothing is a given but we all know how it's changed our mindsets we all know how it's changed our fundamental behavior before audio problems we were talking what were we talking about we're talking about family and yeah uh having kids and And longevity and how it would affect the instincts uh yeah when we can achieve like not immortality but healthy longer longevity longevity let's say did someone just join the call what is going on now i think my son is cool samuel is (laughs) on the call And I was saying family is great. <laughs> yeah, family. Yeah, kids are assets. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's let's get into it. What's um what's about uh roads to this is another thing that you wanted to talk about, roads to hyper bitcoinization. Yeah, so I mean I think the NGO take is the gateway drug, like inflation. Or okay, there's also Bitcoin also has inflation. But relatively, it has very low inflation. So uh, what made, like, it's a sound money because relatively it's more, uh, it has more low inflation. And I just inflation... Can I just stop you there? Because yes. Something, something that a lot of people get tripped up about when they talk about Bitcoin and inflation. And I've had this uh-huh. with people that I've been trying to and i i tell them it's you know a deflationary asset and they say well no it's inflationary but like, no it's not and we get into this whole argument and then i realize that they're anchored on the price so uh-huh, uh-huh. the price as inflationary and it's like okay right yes now i get it 
But what I'm talking about, what I thought I was talking about was the, the coin flow, the, the amount of coin yeah. available. And I, uh, I've now come to realize that I need to refine my pitch. So if you could help listeners understand that what you're talking about with regards to inflation in Bitcoin. What I say is Bitcoin has an inflation, but its inflation is deflationary. Like, yeah, its inflation decreases every four years. So it's in, or every day because, you know, the total or SDF increases every day, every 10 minutes, basically. But it's a deflationary inflation. And I always say it's, it's not about inflation that much. It's good to have the halfings or halfings because it creates the pumps and dumps. So it kind of with the halfings, it mimics the Keynesian cycles. So two years of quantitative hardening increases the prices, and then at some point it reaches to the dilution point, and then it starts to like go a little lower. But I think it will eventually change, so we won't have the volatility as much because we are going into uncharted territory, meaning that yeah, gold was one of the highest. Now, actually, human still is the highest, but gold was the highest. And now we'll have a new uncharted territory, and things may change after that, because the impact of happenings first half and the second half may not be the same anymore. But anyhow, I always say the most important thing is the stability of the inflation. Like, for example, I have written about this before, like the Istanbul has a certain amount of taxis and the number did not change since 1966. But yeah, Istanbul taxi plates are the same as they were in 1966. Why is that? Out of, so, like, is that some just random ceiling that was reached? Well, well, I think uh, it's because of the my intolerant minority. Because like, uh, so the, the taxi case in Istanbul is really interesting. So the taxi plates are really expensive mm -hmm. because you cannot make new ones. But it's also very fragile because they can be made. If the uh, municipality says, okay, we are adding 100,000 more taxis, then it's not, its price will just collapse. And this is not written in, this is not set in stone. So it could be disrupted in time, you know? And by the way, the Istanbul population increased to eightfold, maybe, since 1966, with migration into town and all that stuff. And the taxi, numbers are the same so the taxi plates became really valuable and uh so is it an open for example you can you buy and sell the plates if you own one of these plates you and somebody wants, yes i mean it's that's an open market yeah yeah it's an open market and some people have a lot of them and yeah it, it's a very scarce asset mm. but you don't know if it will be scarce tomorrow right yeah, that can change in an instant. Yeah, yeah. Uber so, actually... Are you, are you allowed to be Uber drivers in Istanbul, or is that out? You used to be, and then the taxi drivers started to be the Uber drivers. 
<laughs> Free market. Really? And yeah. And and they called they called the, themselves as the because the taxis in Istanbul are yellow. Mm-hmm. And we were calling them the yellow fever. Right. <laughs> because really. And then they forced the uh, government to kick out Uber out of Turkey. Mm. Yeah, and and then Uber is not like Uber uh, really resisted it for a long time, and they were paying a lot of fines, and not the uh, drivers were not paying the fines. Uber was paying on behalf of the drivers, so they really tried to stay in Istanbul, but the yellow fever took over. So it really was the intolerant minority that protects this. But so uh, when you, you think about uh, what the taxi drivers do and uh, take that the same context, but take it to construction, okay? In Turkey, uh, the government really gives a lot of construction permits to companies that are close to the government. For example, in my neighborhood, let's say the maximum level of buildings you can build is seven. But if it's uh, close to the government company, they may go up to 30 floors or something. And it's really the easiest way to print money and give it to others because land gets valued by 30 times and you have 30 floors that you can build on it. So anyhow, like uh, actually like last year, I was in a friend's of mine's house and we were looking out of the window and there was this big empty space and that place was bought by this company named Genghis Inshad, which is literally, uh, uh, yeah, the owner of Genghis Inshad has the same man crush I have on Sailor, but he has it for the Erdogan, for the president, you know. He bought that huge land for, I don't know, five, $1 million mm-hmm. with a huge uh, construction permit. And he can probably build, I don't know, 1,000 apartments there, each selling for $800,000. When you think about it, people who live in that neighborhood should be intolerant minority, just as the taxi drivers. Because when you get uh, 1,000 new apartments there, your value decreases because you have the older, older houses there. And all that stuff. So I think intolerant minority is a really important concept, and it is not being practiced as much as it's needed. Like as Bitcoiners, we are intolerant minority. I was going to say, like, yeah, like the, the intolerant uh, cyber hornets, let's say, whatever you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty intolerant, pretty maximalist, and uh, yeah, ready to do anything to fight the cause of, of what we believe in uh-huh. this is i think this goes missed in the, in the wider world the reason we're fighting for it isn't it isn't born from this personal greed yeah yeah it's born it doesn't matter how much personal green greed you have, I really started to think you will have as much assets as you are destined for. Mm. 
I really started to believe this, like because like I could have such a uh, Bitcoin in 2011 didn't happen, 2013 didn't happen, 2017 happened, and then I I wasn't only Bitcoin, and I got really lucky, so it was good uh, during that uh, altcoin market. Then I the reason why I sold my altcoins was very simple. I saw an article about Ripple's ex-CEO being the fifth richest man in the world. What did he do? Nothing. I'm like, oh, there's a huge bubble here, so <laughs> I should get rid of this stuff as soon as possible. I mean, even though I didn't have any Ripple stuff, I was like, no, nah, it's really, uh, <laughs> there's, there's something wrong here. Like, yeah. So I got lucky there, but now, now I'm trying to stack as much. And I had some big projects beginning of this year, and then Corona happened, so they are canceled. So I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm I'm okay with it. I know I'm destined for a certain amount of satoshis, right. and I'll have them. Nothing more, nothing less. <laughs> and this comes down to time preference, I think. Before uh-huh, uh-huh. about this, and I think you have a firm belief that you know if you have a low time preference what what you desire comes to you rather than you going out and getting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always also say this, you don't find Bitcoin, Bitcoin finds you. Mm. You know, because we are desperate for, yeah, in order to fight inflation, let's say. And it's like, okay, come friend, I'll help you get, get out of this situation. Or your country is being sanctioned, Bitcoin is like, okay, come friend, I, I'll take care of you. You know, it's like, yeah, that's how I see it. Like, it's always there when you are in need, in a way. Yes. And and my hype, back to my hyper Bitcoinization. I was going to. So it starts. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so it starts with the inflation and people are like, well, you know, this numbers going up i should get into this and all that stuff and it's really good i think it's a brilliant marketing idea you know uh, for combined with the health things uh, but the real use case uh, becomes capital controls so capital controls then you are desperate to use it even if you don't believe in it you have to use it if you have to get around some certain capital controls. Like, um, for example, they removed this, but uh, Turkey was taxing one person uh, for when you purchased dollars or gold, or not dollars, but foreign exchange and gold, it was getting taxed one person for purchasing and for selling. So each two-way transaction was costing like literally two percent and then my father was like yeah and he, he like we do uh, agriculture and all the prices are dependent on dollar because we have fertilizers mm. they are all uh, priced in you know uh, globally uh, Global. by the dollar yep. yeah the seeds are like that fertilizers are manure uh, no, not manure. I, I went back to composting. Uh, everything is priced in dollars. Like for animal feed is also priced in dollars. 
So he needs to have some dollars, like liquid in dollar form. Unfortunately, Bitcoin's volatility is scaring him. So I told him, well, whatever that, you know, you don't, if there are capital controls, you don't buy dollars from the bank, you buy Tether. Then he didn't have to pay the 2% tax, for example. So capital controls will play a bigger role. Like, for example, Iran, they don't have a choice if they want to transact with the outer world. Either they hand you cash or they can use some alternative methods like Bitcoin. But the final hyper-Bitcoinization case is about ownership. Because right now, uh, most of the ownership is registered by a third party. Like either that is government or like, or a bank or something. It's protected by a third party. But what happens if the third party cannot manage to protect your ownership? Like with, with Bitcoin, it's the only thing in the world that you don't need assurance of a third party. Mm. You can you can you can just own it, and nobody needs to protect it for you, unless you. So that could be my that that's probably my hyper Bitcoinization case because I think uh, things will get dirty, and ownerships will be challenged. And and in that case, you'll want to hold on to the thing that you know you have ownership of without the government in between. And a, a perfect example of this, we just had a friend over earlier who's teaching my, one of my daughters how to play guitar, and he was talking about how he ended up buying, he, he's just bought himself a new house, he's, he's not open to me, uh -huh. we, we won't go down that route. But he was telling me, yeah, yeah I think I got a good price on it because the person who owned the house had to sell it because he came into ownership to of pay taxes. Yeah. Came into ownership of, yeah. uh, but because it was not a vertical, uh, inheritance, it was more of a sideways inheritance. Uh -huh. The tax laws are completely different here in France. So oh God. I'm just basically thinking, basically he ended up owning nothing. Whoever, whoever, uh -huh worked their ass off to get those houses to pass on to whomever they deemed fit, mm -hmm. didn't end up owning anything. Yeah. Always someone yeah. And it just disgusts me. Yeah, I mean, even that, like, taxes are actually continuous fees that the government take from you in order to say, uh, in order to assure your ownership. Because without taxes, there is no... No, like they cannot uh, function and they cannot uh, protect your ownership. Military is for ownership. Like military is uh, there to make sure that the borders are protected. Police is for ownership. Bitcoin, you don't need that. You have the ownership. And with Bitcoin, you only pay once. Mm -hmm. And that's the transaction fee. And you don't need to make repeat payments basically like and the longer your ownership is the harder it is to change it because the blocks are building on top 
and you need even more thermodynamically. It becomes thermodynamically nearly impossible at some point, like for them to rewrite, you know, your transaction. And so you pay once, and it's always there to protect your ownership versus continuous payment of ownership protection services. So this is probably the way that will make hyper-Bitcoinization happen in my own opinion, but we'll see. When people wake up to the this concept of ownership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you, you, you're hitting a really good point here because what's going to happen we're going to have another event like 2008 where people are going to have to fork uh-huh. houses or their cars or their TVs or their sofas or their beds, whatever else they've bought on cheap credit, on fiat credit, and all of a sudden they realize they actually don't own any part of that good that, they, yeah, yeah. that they've been you know, kind of tricked into to believing that they own then yeah, that, that is going to have a huge, I mean, 2008, when hmm. was too early. I, it was too, I, mean, I was in the States during 2008. It was interesting for me to see a big crisis in the most kind of developed country in the world. So it was interesting. But if that, I mean, when that happens again, if that had happened and, and Bitcoin had been around for a good 10 years by that point, I think it would have been a natural thing for people just to turn around and say, well, like, yeah, yeah. It was a thing. You know what's so interesting, though, when you mentioned cheap credit? So, like, yesterday I literally calculated my own inflation index. But I didn't make a basket for, I don't know, bread or oranges or bananas or stuff like that. I did an uh, inflation basket using uh, some ideas that, uh, you know, Michael Saylor mentioned. So what what was it? Premium real estate in my city. Mm -hmm. Normal car. I used the Passat. Mm-hmm. 1.5 is an average normal car. I used uh, premium high school education costs. I used uh, Harvard education costs. I made a basket of the uh, no, latest iPhone during that time. Uh, a basket of Facebook, Amazon, uh, Google, and Microsoft. Any bonds? And Huh? No bonds. Oh, bonds, bond market is, <laughs> it's, it doesn't exist for, for me. It's like <laughs> pointless for me. Uh, so, and uh, the best, the, I took the average prices of the stock values and I said, let's say I'll take 10 times the average of those for. So it was $1,350, for example, in 2012, like not, not a lot. Right. And I used for the CPI, I used is the government here calculates the uh, poverty line. So and if you are if your earning is under that line, poverty line, you are considered poor. Or you need to have that much to have a decent food and all that stuff, like 
let's say it was $1,000 a month if for a four-person family. And then you are okay, they say. So I took those values instead of the CPI. And I added uh, employing one minimum wage worker. Like, you know. So I did this and then I calculated. And between 2012 and today, yesterday, it was actually 2020. And I found the inflation to be 431% compounding <laughs> inflation. <laughs> okay, so TÜİK is the Statistical Institute of Turkey. And uh, they calculated the compounding interest to be 230%. So nearly half what I calculated. But then again, I said, mine is probably way more correct because in 2012, one Turkish lira was 1.8, and now it's 8.07 or, or something, whatever. So actually, that's also 440% or something, really close to the inflation value that I got. And Turkey is really dependent on uh, foreign currency because we have huge trade deficits. Even when we export, uh, our exports cost because we need to import some other material. Our value-added exports cost because we get machines from Germany or this or China or whatever, you know. So it was interesting. Then I was thinking, so who does these uh, inflation, like who does the low inflation numbers benefit? It definitely benefits people or companies who can get huge credits because the interest rates are based on inflation. And uh, the um, wages, salaries are based on inflation. So, like, let's say they say the inflation is 10%, the minimum wage increases by 10%. And 63% of Turkish people that are employed earn minimum wage. So, yeah. And then uh, when the interest rates are low, certain people can get unlimited credit for cheap. And they can employ people for cheap. And really, this increases the Gini factor. Like, and the, the like gap between the rich and the poor even increases more. And once the middle class is dead, you don't have people with hobbies. You have very fewer people with hobbies. You, you have very fewer people that has time to think on things. Like, you have the survival instinct at the bottom like at the Maslow's hierarchy, and you have the few people at the top. So I think in 2002, the top 1% uh, of Turkish, or top 1% had 32% of the wealth in Turkey, which is okay. Compared to the world, it's okay. By the 2019, the year 2019, that 1% increased to 65% of the wealth. <laughs> and it's even getting more and more like uh, separated from each other. So at some point it will stop or it will change back or whatever. But I don't know. We'll see. I don't know when it will happen. So. 
Yeah. So what is your, your, your fiat job? Because this is something as well that you, you, you said you might want to touch on. And it's clearly in commodities of some sort. And you, you, you have a very close eye on import and export and exchange rates. Well, uh, I work very flexible, actually. I used to, I started working in 2012 and I was importing uh, German machinery from, yeah, I was working for a German company doing purchasing and sales in Turkey by myself. And I, I, I'm a lucky person. Like, it was my first job. I worked three months uh, together with a friend's uncle. And then uh, <laughs> he stopped working for this company because the other one that he was also representing opened the head office in Turkey and then they appointed him as the general manager. So he had to quit this company and the Germans accepted me as their agent. So I had my own job and I did good. Like I increased sales like up to 14 times. Wow. Uh, we had zero purchasing from Turkey. At some point, we were doing 2.8 million euros of purchasing a year. So it was good. And then at the same time, like the when I started my job, one euro was 2.4 liras. Mm-hmm. And the products I sell are the highest in class. So my competitors have, are all lower than me. They cost lower than me. And during the time I worked, I saw Euro increase so much. And I didn't lose my customers, really. I still have orders from them and all that stuff. But uh, I, yeah, some of them started to look for alternatives. Because now Euro is 9.4, and it was 2.4. Mm-hmm. So, and once we are the most expensive one, that, and when the gap increases so much, uh, you start to lose some customers. So I said, okay, well, importing will be hard. So let me get into exporting business. So I started to, to uh, we have a farm, as I mentioned. It's a decent sized farm, like, I don't know, 1,700 acres, uh, 500, 400, 500 cows. Uh, for that farm, yeah, it's, it's a good sized farm. Why not? farming steaks I love it yeah yeah I am I am (laughs) it's funny though so you know uh, actually my father is a farmer for the last 40 years but he didn't mean to be a farmer he studied computer science Mm. Uh, and then his father passed away at at the year he graduated so he was like well I need to take care of the farm but my grandfather uh, he graduated from law school and then he did, he did his master's in uh, Columbia University. He has a law degree from Columbia, New York. And uh, he was working for the World Bank at some point. He was the lawyer of World Bank and he said, nah, I don't like this job. And he quit and he went to the farmland and there was really nothing there and he started from scratch and you know all that stuff so he opted out of the world bank and the shitty fiat world and he became a farmer 
So it's it's interesting when you think that way, you know. Now I'm really up to the out of fiat as well, you know. So yeah, that's awesome. Opted out of fiat and started a beef business. Yeah, Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is going to find you, my friend. It was always going to find you. So what do you do now yeah. with, with regards to the farm? What what's the the business there? Farm. I don't really do anything. Uh, I do uh, composting machinery. Because in the farm we had like waste management problems and then we built a simple machine uh, to make compost out of our goods and it was a good it turned out to be a really useful machine and then I started to I found this Canadian guy and then I told him well if you wish we could manufacture these machines in Turkey for you and we said, well, yeah, let's think about it, blah, blah, blah. This was year 2014. So, uh, and then he said, okay, like we talked a lot about composting. And he's like, well, I'm really happy that someone young knows about composting and this and that and wants to take this business to the future. So he said, well, yeah, let's try to work. And he's like, I want to visit Turkey. He's like, yeah, sure, come. So he bought his plane tickets and he was flying to Istanbul and he was going to fly to Istanbul and like two weeks before his flight, a bomb exploded in Istanbul. And he's like, no, I'm not going to come. Mm-hmm. Maybe later time once things are okay. So a couple months pass and then I'm like, Glenn, it's okay now, you can come. And then you're trying to pick the dates to come and another bomb exploded in Ankara this time, the capital city. And then he's like, well, I don't think I'll be able to come there anytime soon, you know. But, you know, he trusted me. He sent me all the designs and I switched them to Matrix and then I gave him offers and all that stuff. And uh, it was a big project that we were about to get. He sent me a contract on 13th of July and uh, we canceled the contract on the 16th because... There was a coup attempt in Turkey. Maybe you remember it. <laughs> On the 15th, there was a coup attempt and we canceled it. Blah, blah, blah. So another year passes and he finally ended up coming to Turkey. And once he was here, I, it was really good. Like we had a really good time because I always say Turkey is a real nice place to live. It's just. Yeah, the, okay, the hardware is perfect. The location is nice. The weather is nice. Uh, we have nice beaches. The climate is perfect. We have four seasons. The UX is nice. The people are decent. You know, food is awesome. Life is cheap. But the software, the operating system sucks. <laughs> and it's the government, <laughs> you know. And we can't seem to update it. But hopefully we'll, we'll be able to do it sometime. So yeah, he ended up coming here, and then now we are still working together. It's interesting. He, I found out that he was 78 years old when he came here. He's now 82 years old. He's like my grandfather in Canada. It's like, it's interesting. So yeah, I do composting, and now... Uh, there are two projects that I'm trying to find investors for, but we'll see. Do you want to show those projects? 
And one of them is like about uh, like uh, dust metal metallurgy, making magnets. So it's only made in China. These magnets are only made in China because the rare earth material is from there. And there's a company that's in Germany, Bokumschmack or something like that, that makes these. And yeah, we want to open up the third factory in Turkey because we have some of the elements here. We have boron. Boron is found in Turkey and like 80% of the reserves in the world is in Turkey. And then we just need some magnetic parts. So one of the projects is that. And the other one is a, has a patent. Uh, you know, bolts and nuts. So uh, normally there's, they have metric sizes. So M24, up to that size, you can do it with uh, uh, cold forging. But nobody in the world manages to do M36 in a cold forge press at the moment. It needs to be hard forged or CNC machine. And it takes a lot of time. And this guy can do bolts and nuts uh, yeah, with, with cold forge presses and has a patent for it. And it's 30 times faster to produce them that way. So, yeah, second project is that. Yes. I have I have a wide range of interests. So. At the same time, yeah, number one project is just stacking as many sats as you possibly can. Uh, yeah, that's the that's the goal. <laughs> that's why I I work my ass off. So. <laughs> I'm really broke, like well, torn into pieces, like last couple of weeks because accumulated too much work on me. But yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Everything is going okay. And there's one all, all, one last piece I want to talk to you about, and that yeah, the the piece that you put out about um like time travel and uh, trade yes yes Silk Road uh, because that was a very very cool thread, and you got the Wizard of Oz. Uh, f you know, he rounded that thread out for you very very nicely. So a big shout yeah. So if you want to talk about that, like you find yourself at the marketplace and standing and trying to take yourself back in time. Yeah. Well, first of all, I really like Wizard of Oz. Uh, we met each other too before in person. It was nice to meet him too and hi to him if he is listening. So, well, like, uh, that, that's what I'm thinking, like, so... Information asymmetry is actually like time traveling, in a way. I mean, it's not something I have written over there, but if you think about it, once you have asymmetry in information, it's like you are ahead of someone. And if you share that information to someone who is not aware of that information, they either believe it or not. Uh, so also like Bitcoin is also a huge information estimator between people because I don't know, I spent thousands of hours about reading on Bitcoin, listening about Bitcoin, like living uh, in Satoshi terms, you know, like, like my money was Satoshi. I valued everything in Satoshi. That, that really makes a big change in your life. And when I explain this to other people, it's really so hard to give all the experience. 
because I live in a parallel universe to them. And I see everything, like I told you, I, sh I look at this napkin and I say, it says it takes two hands to hold. I'm like, these burger people are, should be Bitcoiners, you know, like, I see everything differently. Like I'm drinking this, half of it is, more than half of it is tax. Right. I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I, I'm not drinking beer, I'm drinking tax. I see it that way, for example, you know, so I, uh, then I, when thinking about also like trade, trade back in the days where information was not moving as fast. Uh, yeah, for example, somebody invented compass uh, in China and nobody is aware of it yet until a trader takes it and travels with his caravan to another side of the world and is showcasing the compass. And he's trying to explain what the compass does, like how it helps you navigate through places on the sea and how you can make your, how it can make your life so much simpler. So that trader, when you think of him, is like a time traveler because like, I never heard of something like this before. And what he knows, he knows it, he has seen it, he has experienced it, and he is trying to explain it to you. And uh, <coughs> in this case, also the reputation of the guy who is trying to market the compass is also really important because there is no price discovery about that. Like I, as a person that has never used that compass, cannot really price it correctly because I don't know how much it will actually benefit me before I use it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the merchant paid a certain price for this, but, uh, and he is trying to sell it for a certain price, but you don't know if the next merchant will come with thousand compasses and will sell them for dirt cheap. So it's, it's really a, a big connection between the buyer and the seller and the price discovery. And like right now, uh, when I buy Satoshis, I know that I'm buying them, I'm stealing them from someone else. Because I'm that merchant that has experienced the compass, you know, and not everybody has that much, I know, time spent in Bitcoin or understands it that way. But, and when somebody is like, oh, I'm up 10%, uh, I made a lot of money, I'll sell it, then I'm literally stealing. It's from their weekends, you know, so <laughs> I don't know. I'm not very good at tying the knots at the end, but you know, you know, you understand the point. I certainly do. And it's a very, very good point. And it, yeah, it makes you, it does take you back to, and I urge anybody to read, read your thread. I think it's cool. And everyone is a scammer. Is that what you named it? Huh? Well, no, you're no, no, uh, my, not my thread. Everyone is a scammer. Is a, a Goldstein thread. Yeah, Goldstein. Yeah, no, no, article. Goldstein. Yeah, yeah. But no, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's a very, very cool thread, and it gets you thinking. It puts you back in that marketplace, you know, thousands of years ago, where price discovery was a real thing, and this is exactly what we're happen What is happening in Bitcoin right now? Price discovery. Yeah. Thing. And but the, you know what's so 
that are selling, the people that are selling, yeah. either out of need, maybe out of need, you know, in some cases minors, but that those people that are selling because they're, they're, they're making a quick buck just haven't, they don't have the information that yeah, yeah. more experienced market participants do. Um, and again, this is what is going as more and more people get educated. This is why Bitcoin education is such a key, key thing. Whereas back in those days that you're talking about, that that information was key and you would never tell anybody about it. Maybe your brother or like a trusted. Yeah, yeah. But not now where we're on the internet trying to tell as many people as possible, whoever might be tuning in and listening to this podcast or tens of dozens of others, or just reading about it yeah. on the internet from people such as uh, Parker and Robert that we, we've already discussed in any of the books that are coming out. Like this is, this is what's different and this is what's really, really very important to get people to hyper-Bitcoinization and awareness. Yeah, like if I was the merchant banging the gunpowder, I would never sell it. Mm-hmm. Why would I sell gunpowder? You know, like I would keep it and use it. You know, it's like this is the same thing. Right. Yeah. But so. let's round out this discussion with with the usual question. And if you had one red or orange pill left to give to someone. Uh-huh. Who would you give it to and why? Mm. It's interesting question. Oh, wait, wait, wait, wait. I should have thought about this before. Still thinking. <laughs> Thank you. When I think about it, I wouldn't want to give a red pill or orange pill to someone because they'll eventually become a Bitcoiner, you know? Like, I wouldn't want to force it, so I would like to see free market in action, basically. That I don't know if it makes sense, but I would like to see... I don't like these, like, forced stuff, subsidies, or, you know, like... Like, but if I, I would like to talk to as many people as possible about Bitcoin instead of an individual, uh, like, because I want this to be held by the people. That answer ties in exactly with what you were saying at the start of the show about how Bitcoin finds you when you need it. Yeah, yeah. So to stand true to that, that is clearly very, very deep in your in your subconscious to come up with that answer right now. I don't want to give it to anyone because that's going to ruin their journey. That's that's. I don't want yeah, yeah, yeah. in their in their rabbit hole journey. Uh, you're you're happy to talk about it with people, educate them about it, try and lead them there. But ultimately, your belief is Bitcoin will find you when you're ready. Yeah, and I think it's. I would like more and more people to have it and keep it themselves, hopefully, because I don't want it to get institutionalized. (laughs) Because, you know, 
the institutionalizing Bitcoin is the actual 51% attack. Do you count? Do you count Michael Saylor? No. <laughs> in Bitcoin. No, no. Because <laughs> because I'll tell you something. He said he had problems in Argentina. Mm -hmm. uh, he had his money in Argentina, and he was thinking of buying a yacht and sailing it to the Caribbean. Imagine, this was him for $1 million. What do you think he would do for 38,000 Bitcoins now? He would take off from this world if necessary. <laughs> like, that's why I, I don't know. I think he is uh, in the perfect mindset and he really sees his heir to be the Sailor Academy which is valuable like he wants an educated generation he wants a better world for not for himself only you know just why not because he can be a part of it you know so i i don't see him as institutionalized uh yeah what what do you see as i know what, what would what would be that Definitely. apple blockfi blockfi i don't like blockfi mm -hmm. uh for example, because, I mean, you give custody of your coins to someone and they make interest and blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I don't like that. It's really not necessary. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, BlockFi, Celsius, all those like, uh, or uh, wrapped Bitcoin going into yield farming, because I don't think DeFi really exists because you need a third party. Uh, so those are all institutionalizing your Bitcoin because you could have held it yourself. And it's like the key to Bitcoin that it's so easy to hold it. Right. So, yeah. All right, man. Well, Stackmore, it's been so great to, to do this and to get together, have this chat, share some beers with you and, Take yeah. a dive into your mind. I really appreciate you supporting the show, listening to the show, sharing it, and, and now appearing on it. So a big thanks. How can people come and find you and interact with you? And um, do you have any final message for the listeners? Yeah, final message is stack sets. Although it's all, all you need. Teach people about Bitcoin if possible. And self-custody, it's not really worth those small API gains or whatever. So that's the final message. And I'm on Twitter, 1971 bubble, because I think the biggest Ponzi in the world is that. And Nixon is the biggest scammer in the world. So, yeah, that's my nickname. And I really like the website, what the fuck happened WTF happened in 1971. You can also visit it. It opens up a new world for you uh, to see how things changed after the gold standard. Yeah. Became the fiat standard. It's definitely a great website. And for those people that haven't seen it, go check it out. And if you want to go and listen to uh, a previous episode I did with Ben Prentice, who uh, was co-founder of that site, then um, go check that out as well. All right, Stagmore, it's been great to uh, to do this. Let's um, 
Let's stay in touch. I look forward to meeting you in real life one day and uh, I'll see yeah. you on the Twitter. Okay, we'll we'll do actual cheers. Cheers, yes. Uh, take care and say hi to Lauren once more and thanks for hosting the show. Oh, I will do, man. I will say hi and good. Okay. Take care. Hey guys, thanks for listening and thank you to Stackmore for taking the time to come on the show and for reaching out and, and asking to come on and connecting because it's it's so great to connect with people from all over the world and to talk to somebody that is living through the nightmare of well, hyperinflation and has seen it firsthand how it's affected friends and family and everybody and everything around you. And one thing that I've really taken away from from that conversation that's been playing on my mind, when when we were talking about how it must be a lot easier for him being a Bitcoiner in Turkey, or if you're in a country that is facing some real monetary worries and ridiculous inflation and, well, we all know, basic stealing of your wealth, how much it's easier to convert people to, well, not convert, but to to persuade people to have a closer look at Bitcoin and get your point of view across quite easier. And we in our more kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, privileged positions of living in countries with stronger currencies, we always use the the the Venezuelas or the Lebanons or the Turkeys as examples of people that really need Bitcoin and this is what's going to drive adoption. Whereas they're in their country here, like Stackmore is saying, I always say to my friends, why on earth do you think that the people in the US are stacking sats? Why are they swapping the world's global reserve currency at a rate quicker and in a bigger volume than anywhere else. Why are they so willing to give up their US dollar fiat currency and switch that into Bitcoin? Think about that. Let that sink in. And of course, we always have to look from both sides of the story. And when you do put yourself in somebody's shoes in one of these, uh, sorry, not developing nations, in one of these nations that are going through uh, th- these these troubles with their fiat currency and point out, look, even those people that live under the strongest fiat currencies are changing to Bitcoin. Get on the rocket ship because there's only one way this is going. So... Big thanks to Stackmore for for bringing that point up, uh, along with all the others that he brought up and the stories and the analogies. And it's brilliant. Loved getting to know him. Look forward to meeting you one day, mate. Thanks for coming on and for um, for sharing and all of the writing and threads that you put out there. People go follow Stackmore because uh, he's, a, he's a fun guy to follow and he likes dropping truth bombs. So with that said... Don't forget to start stacking sats. If you're not, if you're in the US, swanbitcoin.com forward slash once bitten. If you're in the UK, 
coinfloor.co.uk forward slash once bitten. Wherever you are around the world, go find at Friar Hass on Twitter. Friar F R I A R H A S S. He lists all of the dollar cost, fiat cost averaging services for you to go and interact with, open accounts, and start stacking away. Big shout out to Adam, as always, at Adam Woodhams1 for helping me put this together. Massive shout out for at Jim Reaper, who's putting a lot of his own time and effort to get a website up for the podcast. You can now go and find the website www.once-bitten.com and we have the the episodes syncing to that so every episode will automatically sync so you can listen straight from the website so if you're listening to a show and you want to share it with your friends you can just send them the url that takes them to the website to learn a bit about bitcoin learn a little bit about me learn a little bit about the sponsors and get access to all of the episodes it will evolve over time thank you so much jim for reaching out and taking on that project really appreciate it and to all the bitcoiners out there thanks for listening sharing commenting writing reviewing you know what you do and i really appreciate it look forward to seeing you guys on twitter and look forward to the next show thanks guys have a great one